Thank you, Sarah. You know, Good Friday makes belief in God possible. Uh, Good Friday makes belief in God reasonable. Good Friday makes belief in God resonate with reality. St. Augustine says that God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. In case you start to switch off, I want to capture you at the start by giving you six words. If you live today with these six words, you know the meaning of Good Friday. Why it is called good instead of bad Friday. It is Good Friday summarized up in six words. I hope you'll remember for the rest of your life. Good Friday simply means that Jesus makes access to God possible. That is the meaning of Good Friday, that Jesus has made access to God possible. Without Good Friday, it is not possible to gain access to God. Because of Good Friday, therefore we can access to God. As I say, Good Friday resonates with reality. Good Friday makes me believe in God. Without Good Friday, I don't want to believe in God. Why believe in the God who has no understanding of human struggle and suffering? Why you want to believe such a God? Why you want to believe a God who's sitting in heaven on the throne, looking down on men struggling and just pressing buttons and all that? What, the, what for believing in this kind of God? Good Friday makes me want to believe in God. Because Good Friday makes belief in God resonates with reality in this life that we live in. Uh, recently, I came across this story of this uh, young boy by the name of Christian Choetz. He was a 13-year-old boy in America. His body was discovered uh, buried in a shallow grave under a slab of concrete behind a trailer where he once had lived. He had actually died two years earlier. He was only 13 years old. But those were 13 years of misery, years of isolation and neglect, years of verbal and physical abuse at the hands of his father and stepmother. And he lived only with the father and stepmother because his own mother and her boyfriend had been accused of molesting him. He was kept from home, home from school, and Christian Choet spent much of the last year of his life locked in a three-foot-high dog cage with little food and drink and few opportunities to live. He was let out briefly to clean and vacuum the house, and he endured salvage beatings from his father. And one night in April 2009, Christian was too weak to keep his foot down. His father beat him, 
to the point of unconsciousness and lock his limb body in a cage. And the next morning, his sister found him dead. And he wrote, he wrote of why nobody liked him. Sorry. And how he just wanted to be liked by his family. And he stated that he wanted to, to die. Because nobody liked him. And then he detailed a very sad, depressed child who often wondered when someone or anyone was going to come check on him and give him some food and water. And he often stated that he was hungry and he was thirsty. Do you want to believe in a God that don't understand suffering? Is it worth believing in a God like this that is not resonate with humans' struggles? Why do you want to believe in such a God? If there's no Good Friday, nobody should come to church. Nobody should believe in God. But believing by Good Friday makes me want to believe in this God. St. Augustine in his book said, Give me someone who loves and he will understand what I'm trying to say. Give me someone whose heart yearns, who feels the nostalgia of loneliness in this exile, who is a thirst and sighs for a fatherland eternal. Give me such a one, and he will understand what I'm trying to say. But if I must explain myself to ice-cold indifference, he will not understand. I mean, how many of us want to share with someone who has completely no understanding of your situation? Don't you think you're wasting your time that you'll come back with some kind of silly book kind of answer that has no resonate with what you're going through? William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the first year of World War II, he says this, remember World War II, it's the first, day of, first year of World War II, and this is what he said. He said, the revelations of God's dealing with human sin shows God enduring every debt of anguish for the sake of his children. All that we can suffer of physical or mental anguish is within the, the divine experience. He does not leave this world to suffer while he remains at ease apart. All suffering of the world is His. And then he went on to say, Only such a God can be God of the world we know. Let me repeat. Only such a God can be God of the world we know. And if I may add, Only such a God can be God in a world that includes multiple stories 
like that of Christian Coet, and only such God can be God of our own stories. Someone said Jesus did not come to remove suffering or to explain it away. He came to fill it with his presence. Someone asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And Jesus said this much. He stretched out his hand and he died. This morning, I want to, remaining time that I have, just touch briefly on this series that we've been working through, why Jesus Christ is the true and better than Adam, better than Isaac, and today I'll do Christ the true and better Moses, and on Easter Sunday, Pastor Caroline will complete this series with Christ the true and better David. Let me read the text to you, and I'll briefly share some thoughts with you. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. I have three thoughts that I want to share with you on Good Friday concerning how Jesus Christ is greater, the true and greater prophets than Moses. We all know Moses. If I would ask you to write a few things about Moses, you will remember he led people out of slavery. He led people out of Egypt. Moses led the people out of slavery, whereas Jesus leads people, leads us out of sin. You know, nowadays sin is not a popular word. But sin is definitely, I assure you, it's a popular activity. It's just that they don't call it sin. Because sin has been explained away. You know, in early times, ideas of human nature and solutions to human problems were generally informed by the Bible and defined as sin. But under the attack of social science, especially psychology, the concept of what is wrong with humans has evolved from sin to illness, to error, to hurt. So that far from feeling guilty, the predicament feeling is that the predominant feeling is that someone with problem is a victim of someone else's malice, someone else's stupidity. And as a result, we are what others influence us in that sense. So the nature of sin is little understood, the origin of it little known, and the results of it considered only far, far too late. But Christian has, but Bible has a different views on that. And today, if you ask people, what's wrong with the world, generally they'll give you three reply. What's wrong with the world? Number one, they will concentrate on self. We suffer low self-esteem. 
low self-acceptance. We lack some sort of psychological wholeness in ourselves. This is, and therefore, we can find answer in therapy. That is our problem. We seek therapy. If through therapy, we can get well. And the second, if you ask people what's wrong with the world, they will focus around large-scale global issues such as the destruction of institutional prejudice. This is the approach taken by most of today's political movement and what they call ism, I-S-M-S, isms, feminism, environmentalism. The gay rights movement, political pressure, black life matters, cancer culture. For such people, what's wrong with the world is something corporate. We live in a society that abuses the environment, denies equal rights to, to particular group where money and powers are unevenly distributed, and so on. And so the answer is that we must be a corporate answer to it, therefore equal rights the end of patriarchy, the change of government, and salvation entails the death of sexism, heterosexism, ageism, racism, rationalism, consumerism, all the isms. That's the problem. And the third group of people generally answer, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the problem is offered by the increasingly popular New Age spiritualities and cults with roots, goes back to some thousand years ago, Eastern mysticism. For this group, what's wrong is ignorance. The human tragedy is that we lack true consciousness to understand a hidden mystical truth, such as the illusory nature of the material world or of our own divinity. But Christianity have a different view of sin. The Bible tells us that sin is not just an act. Sin is not just an attitude. Far more than act is an attitude, but far more than attitude is nature. The rooted in you is already sinfulness when you're born into this world because of Adam. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born sinners. That's what biblical position is. You're born sinners. Your born default setting is to do wrong. I think every parent with children knows that, kids. No one teaches children to do bad things, but they just know how to do wrong things. They just know how to lie. They just know because the default setting is gravitated towards that direction. And so biblical sin then is not just sin against man, but sin against God. Not just sinful behavior, but sinful nature. Not just sinful activity, but sinful thoughts. Not just sins of violation, but sins of omissions. Falling short of likeness to God. And that is why in the story of the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted Eve to eat of the fruit. Because you say, when you eat of it, this good and evil, you will know good and evil. Good and evil is synonymous, it means all knowledge. That's the meaning of good and evil. All knowledge. It means to aspire to a knowledge on the level of what God has, which is omniscience. 
to aspire to a knowledge of good and evil is to seek that maturity which frees one from being dependent on someone else for guidance on how to act wisely. And we have a word for that nowadays. It's called individualism. Another ism. Many years ago, Time magazine ran a series of articles under the heading, What's Wrong with the World? There were stories on war and poverty and other problems in modern society, all attempting to answer this age-old question. And there's an English writer called G.K. Chesterton, a famous journalist and author. He decided to write to the editor. And he says this, Dear Sir, in response to your article, Titled, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. In response to your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. And interestingly, Time published the short letter that I'm not sure how many people actually caught his drift. The problem, according to G.K. Chesterton's letter, is not poverty or war or all the isms. The fundamental problem in this world is us. And that's why Jeremiah the prophets, many years ago, said the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of our heart, and we need a new heart. And that is why Jesus came here to give us a new heart. That is why the term called born again. We can be born again. Because he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Second Corinthians said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is through Jesus Christ we can have forgiveness from our sins and then we can have the eternal life, the abundant living that Jesus promised. So Moses as great as he is in leading people out of Egypt, out of slavery, but Jesus leads us out of sin. That he has paid for our transgressions. That it is because of Jesus we can now be called the righteousness of God. Through Jesus' work on the cross, not through our own works, not through our effort, not through our riches, nothing from us, not through our intellectual pursuit. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can become the righteousness of God. Jesus led us out of sin. Number two, <clears throat> we all know that Moses parted the Red Sea. He stretched out his hand to divide the sea. But Jesus stretched out his hand, it is to unite us to God. His death on the cross is to unite us to God because we cannot approach a holy God of our sin. We need to go through Jesus who was a sinless, perfect Lamb of God. 
Look at what uh, Moses said that Pastor Bruce has graciously just read to us. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. You know, the miracle is not just parting the Red Sea. The miracle is walking on dry ground. Don't miss that. The miracle is Jesus walking on dry ground. I mean, the people, the Israelites walking on dry ground and not on wet ground. And here, Matthew 27 says, When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, we have been through this thing quite a few times before, but just go through this briefly with you. And that is, this is the Holy of Holies, this part. This is the Holy of Holies. It's known as the Holy of Holies. This is a holy place. This is the outer courtyard. This place is reserved for people who come, the Jewish religion, they come, they present their sacrifice. This is where they burn their, their, their sacrifice. This is a basin to wash. <coughs> the priests will do that here for, for the worshippers. And this is the holy place. This is only place only reserved for priests. It must be from the tribe of Levites. These are only reserved for priests. There are three articles there, the menorah, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense which are burned constantly, signifying praise to God. And then this place here is the Holy of Holies. No one can enter this place, only the great high priest, only once a year. You can enter this place once a year, Day of Atonement, to offer sacrifice to God. Once a year, the high priest entered this place. And even when they enter this place, there's a chain that uh, chains to the high priest, roll out to the holy place there, so that when the high priest moves around, they can hear that he's still alive. If God does not accept the sacrifice, the high priest will be struck dead, and then they will have to pull him out. Here in Matthew 27, said that when Jesus died on the cross, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that is this, this curtain here that is torn into two, the veil. Once a year, the high, great high priest can enter, but now, because Jesus died on the cross, that veil is torn it forever we are able to access to God because of Jesus. Just in case you don't know, you know how big the veil and the curtain is? The length alone is 60 feet. And that is 18 meters. You know how high is 18 meters? If you walk up to foyer, those who are sitting in the foyer, if you look up to the top, that's 9 meters. Double that length is the curtain Shielding the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And it was split into two, from top to bottom. And it is very thick as well, so it can't be torn. And the white is about 9 meters, so 18 meters by 9 meters. 
the tearing of the veil at the moment of Jesus' death dramatically symbolized that his sacrifice, the shedding of his own blood, was a sufficient atonement for our sins. Now we can access to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus stretched out his hand is to unite us to God. Hebrews chapter 10 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And so the moment Jesus died on the cross, God immediately ripped open the temple curtains. And that you and I, we are now able to stand before a holy God. It was a picture of heaven rushing to embrace humanity. Jesus' body is the curtain ripped in two that brings us to the holy presence of God. Charles Spurgeon says, When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom so that big sinners like me might fit through. He's quite big. So Moses let divide, stretch out his hand to divide the sea, but Jesus stretched out his hand to unite us to God. Thirdly, Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is a faithful son. Maybe for Australian culture, we don't feel the, the force of that because we live in an egalitarian culture. No other countries in the world is as egalitarian as Australia. But if you go to other parts of the world, it is not like that. It's a hierarchical culture. There is a huge difference between servant and son. Huge difference. Look at Hebrews 3. It says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Jesus Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Moses was a faithful servant. Jesus was a faithful son. When Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water, heavens opened up, a dove descended, and then a voice came out and said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And interestingly, straight after that, he was led into the, the desert for the counter-temptation with um, Satan. And what was the three questions that Satan asked Jesus? If 
you are the Son of God. Didn't God just say to Jesus and to people, you are my beloved Son? Yet in the desert, Satan said, if you are the Son of God. What do you mean, if I'm a Son of God? I'm a Son of God. And so if I may conclude by saying in this particular thing is that throughout your life, that particular identity, Satan will always be trying to rob away from you. Never forget that you're a child of God. Never forget that. Because throughout your lives, Satan is going to put, cast doubt into you to, to tell you that you are not. You must remember you are a child of God and you are worth it. So Moses is worthy of glory. Moses is worthy of honor. Moses was a servant of God's house. Moses was a servant faithful in God's house, but Jesus is worthy of more glory. Jesus is worthy of more honor. Jesus was a builder of God's house. Jesus was not a servant, but a son. And he is not just faithful in God's house, he is faithful over God's house. So Jesus leads us out of sin, makes it possible for us to come to God. Jesus unites us with God. Jesus is the Son. I want to come back to, in conclusion, how I started. About 50 years ago, uh, Jürgen Mopend, a German theologian, wrote a book called The Crucified God. It's a classic book, Jürgen Mopend. There are a lot of gems inside this book. And he says, God does not become a religion so that men participate in him by corresponding religious thoughts and feelings. God does not become a law so that men participate in him through obedience to a law. That's not what it is. God does not become an ideal so that man achieves community with him through constant striving. He said, no, 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 no. But he humbles himself. He takes upon himself the eternal death of the godless and the godforsaken so that all the godless and the godforsaken can experience communion with him. And he even documented this particular story. The survivor of Auschwitz described how the SS soldier hanged two Jewish men in a and a youth in front of the whole camp. The man died quickly, maybe because he's a bit heavy, I don't know. But it took the youth longer to die. And one Jew forced to watch, ask the question, where is God? Where is he right now? Later on, as the youth still hung in torment in a noose, the man called again. Where is God now? And I heard Jürgen Mortman say, I heard a voice in myself answering that question. Where is he? He is here. He is hanging there on the gallows. On Good Friday, Jesus makes access to God possible. On Good Friday, because of Good Friday, it makes belief in God 
possible. It makes me want to believe this God because it resonates with reality. It is compatible with the struggles of humanity. My friend, come to Jesus. If you do not know him, come to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow Jesus. Eternal life, abundant living will be your reward. And in eternity, you will be so glad you did that. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. It is because of Jesus we can have access to our Heavenly Father. Lord, we are sinful. You are sinless. You provided a way for us to come to you. We can't do it. There is no way that we can gain access to you based on our effort. No matter how good we are, we are not good enough. We are only good enough, we think that we are good enough only because we compare with someone else worse than us. We take the lowest form of righteousness, that I didn't commit murder. I'm good, I support my family. I give money to, to the charity. We use the lowest denominator to pride ourselves as good. When the denominator is up in the sky so high that we can't even reach that it is not just an act, not just an attitude, but our whole nature itself uh, gravitate towards that. How can we be saved other than through Jesus Christ? And for that, Good Friday is there. Good Friday makes me want to believe in this God because He came and He suffered. He knows what my struggle is. He knows what your struggle is. And you can identify, and we're going to pray to you. We know we know you hear us, you understand us. It makes us want to tell you more because we know you yourself have been through it. So thank you, Lord. Thank you. We bow in awe. We thank you. We were there, Lord. We sang the song, Were We There? We were there. It was our sin that nailed you to the cross. Thank you, Lord. There's no other words we can say. There's not enough words that we can express how grateful we are for all that you've done for us. May we come to Jesus. For those who do not know Jesus, Lord, today will be the day. Today will turn over a new living, that the Holy Spirit will descend upon them, and they will live life that honors you, that they will want to shine for you, shout joy in this life. Thank you, Lord. As we sing this song, it reminds us how you are greater than everything else and all greatest prophet in the in Old Testament. You are great. You are on the league of your own. You are our, the Son of God who came to us. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.